0: Chapter 24 Sauvez la fable Esha des vertiges de Nahash, sauvez la plaintive Eva des mirages de la sensibilité, et que les Kéroubes me gardent. Joséphine Péladan, comment on devient fait. Paris, Chamuel, 1893, page Roman 13 As I was advancing into the Forest of Resemblances, I received Belbo's letter. "'Dear Cassaban, I didn't know until the other day that you were in Brazil. I lost touch completely, not even knowing that you had graduated. Congratulations. Anyway, someone at Pilates gave me your coordinates, and I thought it would be a good idea to bring you up to date on some developments in that unfortunate Colonel Ardenti business. It's been more than two years now, I know, and again I must apologize.' I was the one who got you into trouble that morning, though I didn't mean to. I had almost forgotten the whole nasty story, but two weeks ago I was driving around in the Montefeltro area and happened upon the fortress of San Leo. In the eighteenth century, it seems, the region was under papal rule, and the Pope imprisoned Cagliostro there in a cell with no real door—you entered it for the first and last time through a trap-door in the ceiling—and with one little window from which the prisoner could see only the two churches of the village. I saw a bunch of roses on the shelf where Cagliostro had slept and died, and I was told that many devotees still make the pilgrimage to the place of his martyrdom. Among the most assiduous pilgrims are the members of Picatrix, a group of Milanese students of the occult. It publishes a magazine entitled, with great imagination, Picatrix. You know how curious I am about these oddities. So back in Milan I got hold of a copy of Picatrix, from which I learned that an evocation of the spirit of Cagliostro was to be held in a few days. I went. The walls were draped with banners covered with cabalistic signs, an abundance of owls of all kinds, scarabs and ibises, and oriental divinities of uncertain origin. Near the rear wall was a dais, a proscenium of burning torches held up by rough logs, and in the background an altar with a triangular altarpiece and statuettes of Isis and Osiris. The room was ringed by an amphitheater of figures of Anubis, and there was a portrait of Cagliostro it could hardly have been of anyone else, could it? A gilded mummy in Cheops format, two five-armed candelabra, a gong suspended from two rampant snakes, on a podium a lectern covered by calico printed with hieroglyphics, and two crowns, two tripods, a little portable sarcophagus, a throne, a fake seventeenth-century fauteuil, four unmatched chairs suitable for a banquet with the Sheriff of Nottingham, and candles, tapers, votive lights, all flickering very spiritually. Anyway, to go on with the story, seven older boys entered in red cassocks and carrying torches, followed by the celebrant, apparently the head of Picatrix, he rejoiced in the commonplace name of Brambilla, in pink and olive vestments. He was, in turn, followed by the neophyte, or medium, and six acolytes in white, who all looked like Bing Crosby, but with infilas, the gods, if you will call our poets. Frambilla put on a triple crown with a half-moon, picked up a ritual sword, drew magic symbols on the dais, and summoned various angelic spirits with names ending in L. At this point I was vaguely reminded of those pseudo-Semitic incantations in Ingolf's message, but only for a moment— because I was immediately distracted by something unusual. The microphones on the dais were connected to a tuner that was supposed to pick up random waves in space, but the operator must have made a mistake, because first we heard a burst of disco music, and then Radio Moscow came on. Brambilla opened the sarcophagus, took out a book of magic spells, swung a thurible, and cried, O Lord, thy kingdom come! This seemed to achieve something, because Radio Moscow fell silent but then, at the most magical moment, it came on again, with a drunken Cossack song, the kind they danced to with their behinds scraping the ground. Frambilla invoked the Clavicula Salomonas, risked self-immolation by burning a parchment on a tripod, summoned several divinities of the Temple of Karnak, testily asked to be placed on the cubic stone of Yesid, and insistently called out for Familiar 39, who must have been familiar enough to the audience since a shiver ran through the hall. One woman sank into a trance, her eyes rolling back until only the whites were visible. People called for a doctor, but Brambilla invoked the power of the pentacles, and the neophyte, who had meanwhile sat down on the fake toy, began to writhe and groan. Brambilla hovered over her, anxiously asking questions of her, or rather of familiar 39, who, I suddenly realized, was Cagliostro himself. And now came the disturbing part, because the pathetic girl seemed to be in real pain. She trembled, sweated, bellowed, and began to speak in broken phrases of a temple and a door that must be opened. She said a vortex of power was being created, and we had to ascend to the Great Pyramid. Brambilla, up on the dais, became agitated. He banged the gong and called Isis in a loud voice. I was enjoying the performance until I heard the girl, still sighing and moaning, say something about six seals, a one hundred and twenty year wait, and thirty-six invisibles. Now, there could be no doubt. She was talking about the message of Provence. I waited to hear more, but the girl slumped back, exhausted. Brambilla stroked her brow, blessed the audience with his thurible, and proclaimed the rite over. I was slightly awed, and also eager to understand. I tried to move closer to the girl, who in the meantime had come to her senses, slipped into a scruffy overcoat, and was on her way out through the rear exit. I was about to touch her on the shoulder, when I felt someone grasp my arm. I turned, and it was Inspector De Angelis who told me to let her go. He knew where to find her. He invited me out for coffee. I went, as if he had caught me doing something wrong, which, in a sense, he had. At the café he asked me what I was doing there, and why I had tried to approach the girl. This irritated me. We aren't living in a dictatorship, I said. I can approach anyone I choose. He apologized and explained that Although the Ardenti investigation had no priority, they had tried to reconstruct the two days he had spent in Milan before his meeting at Garamont and with the mysterious Rokoski. A year after Ardenti's disappearance, the police had found out, by sheer luck, that someone had seen him leaving the Picatrix offices in the company of the psychic girl, who, incidentally, was of interest to De Angelis because she lived with an individual not unknown to the narcotics squad. I told him I was there by chance, and I had been struck by the fact that the girl had spoken a phrase about six seals which I had heard from the Colonel. He remarked how strange it was that I could remember so clearly what the Colonel said two years ago, yet at the time I had spoken only of some vague talk about the treasure of the Templars. I replied that the Colonel had indeed said that the treasure was protected by six seals of some kind, but I hadn't considered this an important detail, because all treasures are protected by seals, usually seven, and by gold-bugs. He observed that if all treasures were protected by gold bugs, he couldn't see why I should have been struck by what the girl had said. I asked him to stop treating me like a suspect, and he laughed and changed his tone. He said he didn't find it strange that the girl had said what she did, because Ardenti must have talked to her about his fantasies, perhaps trying to use her to establish some astral contact, as they say in those circles. A psychic, he went on, was like a sponge, a photographic plate with an unconscious that must look like an amusement park. The Picatrix Bunch probably give her a brainwashing all year round, so it was not unlikely that once in a trance, because the girl was in earnest, wasn't faking, and there was something wrong with her head, she would see images that had been impressed on her long ago. But two days later DeAngelis stopped in at the office to say that, curiously enough, when he went to see the girl the day after the ceremony, she was gone. The neighbors said nobody had seen her since the afternoon before the evening of the ceremony. His suspicions were aroused, so he entered the apartment and found it torn to pieces—sheets on the floor, pillows in one corner, trampled newspapers, empty drawers. No sign of her, or of her boyfriend, or roommate, or whatever you wanted to call him. He told me that if I knew anything more I'd be wise to talk, because it was strange how the girl had disappeared into thin air, and he could think of only two reasons. Either somebody realized that Angelus had her under surveillance, or it was noticed that one Jacopo Belbo had tried to talk to her. The things she had said in the trance might therefore have concerned something serious, some unfinished business. They, whoever they were, hadn't realized she knew so much. Now suppose some colleague of mine gets it into his head that you killed her, De Angelis added with a beautiful smile. You can see we have every interest in working together. I almost lost my temper, and God knows I don't do that often. I asked him why a person who is not home is assumed to have been murdered, and he asked if I remembered what happened to the colonel. Then I told him that if she had been killed or kidnapped, it must have happened that evening when I was with him. He asked how I could be so sure of that, since we had said goodbye around midnight, and he had no way of knowing what had happened after that. I asked him if he was serious, and he said, What, hadn't I ever read a detective story? Didn't I know that the prime suspect was always the one who didn't have an alibi as radiant as Hiroshima? He said he would donate his head to an organ bank if I had an alibi for the time between 1 a.m. and the next morning. What can I say, Casabin? Maybe I should have told him the truth, but where I come from men are stubborn and never back down. I am writing you because if I found your address then De Angelis can find it too. If he gets in touch with you at least you know the line I've taken. But since it doesn't seem a very straight line to me, go ahead and tell him everything if you want to. I'm embarrassed. I apologize. I feel like some kind of accomplice. Try as I might, I can't seem to find any noble justification for myself. Must be my peasant origins.' In our part of the country, we're a mean bunch. The whole thing is, as the Germans say, unheimlich. Yours, Jacopo Belbo